What's up, everyone? Welcome to The Joshua Perry Show, where we talk sports, life, and everything else. Of course, I am your host, Joshua Perry, former OSU football captain and national champ, retired NFL and currently with the Big Ten Network and 97.1 The Fan. We are broadcasting on the ZDN Network. Today's episode is jam-packed on the Who's Who of The Joshua Perry Show. We have good friend of mine, Nicole Auerbach of The Athletic, where she'll be breaking down college football, her career, and her personal life. Uh, before that, we've got some really good content in terms of college football updates, some good news for you, a little dumbass news, a new segment for this week that we're going to call the Joshua's a Donkey segment, hopefully for one week only. And then, of course, we will finish with a word. Let's get right to it. All right, before we get diving into segment one, I wanted to just tease this real quick. We did a great interview with Randy Wade, that's Sean Wade, the all-star defensive back from Ohio State's father. Um, And I want you guys to check it out. We're gonna put that as bonus content on the back of this episode. So make sure once the episode's over, you stay tuned. We've got that great content coming for you. He's talking about the parents movement, what he expects from the Big Ten commissioner and a plan moving forward for college football. I think it's really exciting. So y'all should appreciate that for sure. So my first segment and, Sorry, guys. It's a Joshua's a donkey segment. And I'm just going to talk about myself and, and how I'm a donkey, essentially. So first thing is, um, I'm a, a, a 26-year-old, but I'm really an old man masquerading as a young adult. And this really came to light this last week. I've got a great producer, Andrew Zolden, and he helps me out with all the content for social media, getting the clips ready, getting the graphics, all that stuff, the links posted up, really, really good stuff. Now, he sends it to me in a text message, and all I really have to do is copy and paste. I struggle to do that properly. I mean, I had to ask people for help. I was asking my fiance. I had to ask Andrew, hey, am I doing this correctly? And it's not that complicated of a process, people. It's just the fact that I'm a dinosaur. I'm really an old man. Um, and, And to make matters even worse, my real estate job requires me to post these cool graphics and different things, you know, post links so it can go to my website and I can drive people and capture leads and everything else. I have no idea how in the hell to really do that. Um, I have a bunch of people directing me on that, which is a shame. Um, and, And so here I am, 26 years old, two cell phones, mind you, and I don't really know how to make either one of them work for me really well. So I just wanted the people to know that. The other thing that makes me a donkey is this past week or two weeks ago or whatever it was, we celebrated National Middle Child Day. And that was a very special day for me because I'm one of three boys smack dab in the middle. And I'm a person who believes in uh, birth order, kind of dictating, determining your personality traits and and who you eventually become as a person. And so we all know that the oldest child is the golden child and the grandparents love that child the most and they spent the most time around them and all this, that, and the third. And it's just so exciting when they were born and blah, 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 blah. And then somewhere in the middle, wherever you fall in that middle phase, it's just really, really boring. Parents don't listen to you as much. Grandparents don't really care as much. You don't get to do all the fun stuff that the firstborn does. You don't get your butt kissed like you're the baby. You're just kind of there in the middle and you got to figure it out. And then, like I said, the baby, um, ass kissing all day. That's just grandparents do it. Parents do it. Oh, don't pick on your little brother. Oh, make sure you take your little brother with you. Oh, this, that, and the third. Whatever. So I'm in the middle. I got to grind my way out through it. So my mother comes over to my house actually on National Middle Child Day. And she comes over to spend some time with my fiance. They get along really well. And we were all sitting at the kitchen table. And I was like, hey, mom, you know what today is? And she was like, no. 
and like it's National Middle Child Day. Now, mind you, this is like a made-up holiday. It's like you know National Donut Day or like National Sunflower Seed Day, just something that somebody came up with. And I'm whoever did it, I'm glad you came up with it. But this is just it's it's not real. It's not anybody's calendar. You know, they're not putting in the daily planner. It's just something that we do on social media. Um, and I, I asked my mother to bake me a cake. And she looked at me like I had three heads. She was like, boy, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, it's National Middle Child Day. Like, I deserve a cake for all my struggles as a middle child. She kind of, you know, rolled her eyes and brushed me off. So I went to the grocery store to do my weekly chores, my grocery shopping. And at the bottom of the list, I put on there to get cake mix and some icing. And that's exactly what I did. And I brought it home. And I said, Mom, you don't even have to do the hard part. I went to the store for you. Okay? All you got to do is just mix it up. 350 in the oven for about 30 minutes we'll be good to go let it cool ice it up and i'm eating cake and she said boy if you don't back up off of me completely brushed me off she left the house of my fiance they disappeared um did not see them for the rest of the night before i went to sleep but one thing i did do is i made myself my own damn cake so i got out my my mixing tools i got out the three eggs some water some oil it's very sad process just me by my myself and I baked myself my own damn middle child cake and I ate the whole damn thing too all right people so this is why I'm a donkey it's because I request a cake on a made-up holiday and then when I somebody doesn't make the cake for me I go ahead and make it myself and then eat it all to myself as well because that's just you know healthy it's what we do so um, that's my plight as a middle child I just wanted to share that with everybody I think that also has played a role in why I'm such a donkey at times but I hope you guys all enjoy that um, let's get into some real headlines, though. We'll, we'll transition to the second segment. Uh, we've got sports headlines, and I think the big driver was really the college football news with the Big Ten cancellation, the Pac-12 cancellation that we've already gone over. There have been so many developments out of that, and I think one of the bigger developments we didn't dive into and I want to give some attention to is Justin Fields and his petition to bring back, essentially, Big Ten football, and he asked – for football to come back, he asked for the ability for folks who didn't want to to opt out and their eligibility would be intact. He wanted some transparency, a Zoom call for the parents and for the players, and he wants some representation. Um, and, and ultimately, I think it's what everybody has wanted is we want to play football in the fall. If we can't play football, then can we get some representation, a, a seat at the table so we can talk about it? And then can we devise a plan moving forward that makes sense? Um, and from the player's perspective, a lot of this boils down to obviously playing the game that they love, but they've, they've talked about safety, uh, being on campus and having the testing protocols and everything else. And I'll dive into that a little bit later. Uh, I think safety is one thing. I think behavior is a completely different thing. Um, but that's what Justin Fields talked about. And he was even waking up with America and Michael Strahan, and he talked to them, and he said the same thing about playing the game that he loved, but also feeling safe in that campus community uh, within the Woody Hayes Athletic Facility or whatever facilities these college uh, players go to every day, they felt like they were taken care of there. So out of that, we kind of get this uh, divide in the Big Ten of players who want to play, schools who want to play, coaches, athletic directors, and then kind of like the quiet schools or even some that have been pretty outspoken about how they're comfortable not playing um, and, and basically what you've gotten is Ohio State's had a lot of smoke, Iowa, Nebraska, um, Wisconsin has, has had a lot of talk about playing Michigan even and Penn State. Um, and it's really unique because you have this have and have not kind of division in the Big Ten where, you know, you have those schools I just named kind of blue blood programs that compete for conference championships right there at the top of the conference. 
And then toward the bottom, you have teams you're not hearing about, Illinois, Indiana, Purdue, um, you know, Northwestern, Maryland, Rutgers, some of those schools that are probably fine not playing, uh, considering the amount of money they would have to spend on testing protocols and everything else might not make as much sense. And, and, and to qualify that statement, we get from Bill Moose, who's the, the uh, AD from Nebraska. He said that all the ADs were in accordance that they wanted to play. They were all in alignment. All of them wanted to play. There were some ADs that were more adamant about it than others. Michigan's AD, Wisconsin, Ohio State. Uh, Nebraska's ADs were very adamant about playing. The rest of them did want to play. Um, but it's where the university presidents kind of had a difference. And if you're a university president, your job is to protect your university and protect the bottom line. I could understand why some of them felt like this was a big undertaking. So from that, that was kind of the story that we got uh, basically yesterday was, um, you know, the, the AD from Nebraska talking about this college football situation and Kevin Warren's decision. So one of the things that he said that stood out was that president's ADs and medical personnel were all kind of on different Zoom calls. So when the ADs were on the Zoom call, the presidents weren't on there. And when the presidents were on there, the ADs weren't. And sometimes they got to talk to medical personnel, sometimes they didn't. And so there was a lot of communication going on, but the communication was happening in vacuums. It wasn't for everybody to have all at the same time. And that was a grave error. But the other thing that Nebraska's AD brought up, which I think is um, interesting because of, of how outspoken Nebraska has been about uh, this decision and, and uh, Commissioner Kevin Warren kind of pulling the plug on football for the fall is he said that Warren was dealt a bad hand. And I think it's really, I'm not going to make excuses. I'm not a Warren apologist, but I do think it's really interesting that he brings that up because I think these conversations, sometimes we lose the backdrop of what we're at is I don't care that he's a, a first year commissioner in the conference because he's had some really, really great jobs, um, some different fields, obviously in professional football for a long time. He was a player agent. Um, he was an attorney, all those different things. So he's a very smart guy. He's been around football. He knows how to make decisions and he understands the impact upon people. I think the backdrop that we keep losing, and it's a really important one, is that we're in the midst of, of a global pandemic, folks. This is a pandemic. So decisions, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know if you can make that call right in the moment because things are changing so rapidly with a novel virus we don't know a lot about. And so, you know, I've said to people, did the Big Ten make the right call? I can't say yes, but I also can't say they made the wrong call. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, we'll figure out kind of toward the end of the year if the other conferences play successfully, then the Big Ten was dead wrong. But there's, I mean, we haven't played any football yet, and there's still a good chance that some of these schools won't be able to play, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So that was what we got yesterday, was these comments about how the communication was not happening in a place where everybody was involved in some of those loops. Now, we'll take a couple of steps back. Um, Joan Gable, who is the president of Minnesota, said that there was a uh, deliberate process to make this decision by the university presidents, but no vote. And that was really, really interesting because Sandy Barber, who's Penn State's athletic director, then followed that up a few days later saying it was unclear if there was a vote that was taken. And so this sparked a ton of controversy and it created really a big mess about communication and transparency throughout the Big Ten. And it really sparked a movement among the parents to search for some answers because the parents were already sending these letters to the Big Ten conference office. They were trying to figure out some solutions moving forward. They wanted questions about the decisions that were made and they just didn't exist. Um, and so now we get to a point where these parents are saying, now we have information 
that is incongruent. You know, one president saying one thing, one AD saying another, and we have no idea what the truth is. And that's, I guess, how we got to this story that was released on Saturday about uh, with Nebraska's AD about kind of how the process went. But I want to bring up one point, too, that I think is fair is in this situation, I feel like a, a vote would have been necessary. It would have made a lot of sense. I think it would I think the folks who voted need to be held accountable to their yeses and nos. But that's not to say that I don't think you can democratically come to a decision without actually having a yes or no vote. And this is an oversimplification, but I think it's still true, is you can be with five people, you know, you get together, hey, where are we going to dinner? What's our restaurant choice? And you throw out a few choices and people will talk about the ambiance and the cocktail list. They talk about their favorite dish and what area of town it is and how long they, it's been since they had been there. And without actually taking a yes or no vote, you can come to a democratic decision on which restaurant you're going to go to. And maybe it's a, a three to two decision without actually voting, but you know where the three lie and what their choice is and what the two believe is the right choice. And you make a decision going on from there. And so people are kind of caught up in this minutia about, well, was there a formal vote and was there this and that? And although I think it is important on a topic that is this serious that they probably should have voted, it's not to say that they couldn't have come to a conclusion without making that vote. And that's just my two cents on it. Um, but I do also back the parents in a lot of ways and the questions that they're asking. And my dad and mom were the presidents of the uh, Ohio State Football Parents Association in 2014. And one of the things that my dad told me is that he would be very disappointed in the lack of transparency. And one thing he would want to see is some of the medical data and uh, who voted which way and um, just some of those things that went into making the decision, which kind of brings me to my next part of this college football thing is the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have had a super uh, different approach. And it's really interesting. National writers are only talking about the Big Ten right now as if the Pac-12 didn't make the same decision and that they're not playing football in, in the fall. And I think it, it comes from two things is the football culture in the Midwest is completely different than the West Coast. And the Big Ten definitely had a dog in the race um, for the postseason and college football playoff with Ohio State. And even Penn State, to a lesser degree, you felt like they were a national competitor, easily a top 10 team. When you look out to the West Coast and what's going on in the Pac-12, they didn't have that same expectation this year of having a top four team, a playoff contender. And so it was probably a little bit easier to make that decision. But when the Pac-12 made their decision, they had ADs, university presidents, doctors, all in alignment, all singing the same song. When Larry Scott was making his announcement, did his press conference, he had uh, somebody with a medical background, a medical doctor who was a part of their advisory board up there explaining what data points they used to make their decision. And I thought that was big in terms of transparency. The Big Ten did not have that same situation, and now it's starting to bite them in the ass. And so we, we also, we have to keep that. But the, the other perspective that we have to keep too is the West Coast, California, Washington, some of these other Western states were hit harder with the coronavirus than Ohio or Pennsylvania, um, Iowa, et cetera. And I think their, their feelings toward the coronavirus are different than our feelings toward the coronavirus. And that's perfectly fine. Medicine isn't necessarily black and white. There is some gray area. And it's also up for interpretation uh, as to the people who are delivering the information and the people that are receiving the information. That, that's really unique perspective we have to keep here. But um, their experience with the coronavirus is different than the experience in the Midwest of the coronavirus. Their politics 
are different than politics here in the Midwest. And it's weird to bring that up in a, a conversation about a virus, a medical conversation, but when everything is politicized in society, it definitely plays a role. So if you're in the West Coast and you have more liberal politics, which are folks who have been more adamant about the, the health and safety concerning this coronavirus and maybe uh, locking things down a little bit more and, and have decided maybe not to bring students back to campus quite yet, then you're gonna feel like moving to postpone a football season or to cancel it would be the right decision. If you're here in the Midwest where you like having your restaurants open and you feel like people can be back on campus and you have youth sports leagues playing and high school football still going on, then there is no reason why you wouldn't play college football. And all of those things are absolutely important to keep in the context of this conversation. But the big takeaway from that is the Pac-12 did it the right way in terms of transparency. And that conference is usually a mess. The Big Ten struggled to get out a consistent message where everybody was confident and there are still questions that need to be answered. And that's where we are right now with that. So moving forward, I talked about the difference between safety and behavior earlier on. And I, I do believe it's true that football players on campus are safer because of the testing protocols that they have, getting tested at least twice a week for a lot of these schools. Um, and the fact that they are, at least during training camp, they were essentially in a bubble where they were only around each other, they were only around their coaches, and there was a low risk for transmission in that process. But here's where the behavior changes, is you add a whole bunch of other students that have no vested interest in following social distancing guidelines and wearing masks and staying out of bars, et cetera, to campus in a scenario now when these students go back to dorms, when they go back to dining halls, and when they go back to classrooms, add a layer of transmission of the virus to the athletes who were basically in a bubble before the rest of the student body got there, I think that becomes an issue. And, and the easy solution would be if our college athletes right now were not amateurs, we would be able to put them in a bubble, we would keep them completely separate and be justified in doing it. But when you say they're amateur athletes and they're students first and they're no different than anybody else, it's really hard to pull that justification. And so we're starting to see where Oklahoma sent some of their athletes home and even ones that stayed in town came back with the virus. So that's one of those scenarios where they're safer on campus. I understand that. Uh, but then you look to places like Notre Dame, where now they have infection on their football team because of students that came back. And keep in mind, Notre Dame was like the poster child for a sec for coming back to school because like 99% of their students had tested negative. Now all of a sudden you have these parties and you have people congregating and you have outbreaks of the coronavirus that happen on campus. UNC had numerous clusters to the point where they suspended uh, athletics there just to figure out what they were going to do. They have now sent students away from uh, the dormitories and, and gone to a virtual learning uh, system. Michigan State has made the call to go to virtual learning as well. Uh, Purdue had to suspend students for going to parties. Auburn, there were videos online over the weekend of the craziness going on there, and Alabama's had cases surging on their campus. So um, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a difficult task for these universities to keep their student athletes healthy, especially early on and now that things are getting started back up. And then once they actually start playing games, if it gets to that point and uh, you had players who, um, you know, might have transmitted this virus from team to team, campus to campus, et cetera, that's a big deal. But the other thing, too, is even if you can pull off a successful season and you continue to play in the midst of uh, 
uh, coronavirus numbers on your team. You know, player gets coronavirus, he goes in quarantine for two weeks, you bring somebody else in to play his position. If it's one of your top players in one of your most important positions, how as a team do you reconcile with that? If you were to lose a game as Clemson because Trevor Lawrence was out of the game, which I, I doubt would really happen because the ACC is hot garbage, but that's a different story for a different day. If you were to lose a game and now you were out of the running for all of your postseason hopes and dreams, how would you feel? And I feel like there's already going to be a big star next to this season on the calendar. But the fact of the matter is, if we start getting into those situations where, oh, you know, our best running back was out, our, our star linebacker, our defensive end was out, and you go into a game and you lose, that puts an even bigger star on the calendar, on the schedule for whoever wins looking back. And it's just a really, really weird situation. And I think it all comes down to how predictable this behavior was, too. If you would have told me two months ago that uh, we would get mo uh, numerous prominent universities come back to campus and they would have exploding coronavirus numbers and they would eventually shut down within a week or two weeks of being back on campus, I would have said, well, no shit. That was absolutely going to happen. And so part of it is um, when you realize that that is a risk, then how do you reconcile with that moving forward? Because there's going to be pressure on some of these leagues now to make their decision moving forward to pull back on what they're doing. You can't have student athletes at risk. You can't have them on campus and nobody else. So we say, or they're just going to push through it and say, you know what? Our football season is more important. We actually can have student athletes on campus without having anybody else. And we can be the only sport that's playing because the NCAA uh, said all their fall championship sports are done. Um, it'll be a really, really unique situation moving forward. I also wanted to bring up one data point. Georgia State quarterback tested positive for COVID and now has developed a heart issue. And it was one of the reasons the Pac-12 pointed to in their research for not playing. It was something else that the Big Ten pointed to as well. But we had conflicting stories about the validity of their studies uh, Michigan had a doctor that came out and said that study was flawed. Kevin Warren is depending on that information as a data point that he used to make his decision. But ultimately, we do see that there are some of these issues, and we don't know how they affect student-athletes in the long term. So I think there is another interesting point um, moving forward to kind of monitor. Um, the other piece of college football news, I guess college news in general, which is kind of crazy, uh, is that the NCAA extended eligibility regardless of if student-athletes play in a season or not. And I think that becomes a little bit dicey. We'll see how that goes moving forward. Because, you know, if you're – and I doubt that some of these teams are just going to extend scholarships to all their seniors that already played a senior year, but you never know. Um, so how does that work in terms of roster management and who you bring back and what advantage those players get? And if you're a young player and you play this year, it doesn't count against you anyway. You could have a basically a redshirt year where you're actually playing on the field and taking reps and getting better. Um, and that would be a big disadvantage to a lot of players who were sitting out this year and weren't able to work on their craft. So moving forward, I am very interested in that. Finally, NFL news. Whoa. Craziness that came out Sunday in terms of their coronavirus testing protocols. And it's really interesting. We started seeing these ridiculous numbers coming back, 9, 10, 11, 12 players uh, testing positive for COVID on a team. And it turns out that there were erroneous false positives that came back from this lab in New Jersey. And it brings up the question, I guess for me more so, is number one, uh, what is the prevalence of these false positives? Is, is this something that is happening a little bit more than we expect? 
And the reason I do ask that is because um, you, you want to have accuracy in this testing. And that was part of some of the trepidation about bringing sports back was how accurate the testing was. And we're, we're lucky it's that it's a false positive and these folks aren't actually sick rather than the other way around where there's sick people that are just slipping through the cracks. But um, it brings up a really valid question there. And then the other question becomes if the NFL, who has invested so much money into their testing protocols, struggling to figure out uh, exactly how to do it properly and accurately, uh, what can we expect from college football, for example, and their protocols? Are, are we suspect to having false positives? Are we suspect to having erroneous tests come back the other way? Um, I'm just really interested in figuring this thing out. And, and that's why it's so hard in this climate to do anything. People want to get back to their normal lives just as I do. I wish I could. I wish I was covering Big Ten football in studio this year. And the reality is I'm not. But I also understand that as long as we have these issues in front of us, number one, a whole damn virus and a pandemic that we're struggling to figure out. But number two, just things as, I don't want to say simple, but things as basic in terms of uh, combating a pandemic and a virus as testing for it that we can't get accurately. It's going to be a challenge to get back to any semblance of what we want as a reality. So just wanted to throw that in there. I think that is a developing story that we have to keep an eye on that not only affects the NFL, but could seep into some of these lower levels if we come to find out that the tests that they are using um, and the labs that are testing them are, are bringing back results that aren't exactly accurate to. All right, so transitioning out of college football sports news, I want to talk here shortly about some good news. So this is coming out of Chicago. NBC Chicago posted this story. Um, Mayana Lifshis and her father, Yusuf, have started a charity. And they started this charity years ago. It's called Books for Cause. And what they had originally done was they had shipped books over to Africa and they, they built essentially free libraries there um, to promote literacy, obviously. Um, in education. Since the coronavirus pandemic has hit, they have actually opened up free libraries in the south and west um, areas of the city of Chicago. They've given away essentially a thousand free books in these libraries and they've opened them up in storefronts that have since closed because of the pandemic. Their idea was they wanted to spread joy, um, they wanted to spread education and literacy during this coronavirus pandemic. And I think that's really important work that they've done. Um, for me, I always was a fan of reading books. I started reading when I was really, really young and just became an avid reader. I think that is why I'm a man of many words nowadays. Um, but the fact is that a lot of people lack access to books and specifically children. And I think the statistic goes that almost half of children in America um, lack access to age appropriate books. And so by opening up a free library in a time where kids aren't in school buildings in a time where um, folks probably aren't really worried about access to their local library and getting a membership. They're worried about how they're gonna feed their family in the midst of a pandemic, I think is really important work. And uh, I'm just super glad to see it. We see a lot of negative news headlines nowadays. And, and it seems like if you went off of those that people don't care about the world and they don't treat each other well, uh, but when you boil this down and you look at what people are actually doing within their communities from a grassroots level, uh, it's really, really important work. And this is going to be impactful. It's going to change somebody's life, whether a child who is uh, really starting to 
blossomed as somebody who wants to learn and, and loves to read and wants to educate themselves and is getting into different topics that are of interest or an adult who is really trying to get back on track and trying to learn skills and improve their life and really enrich themselves through literacy and education. This is gonna be really impactful, so kudos to them. Um, finally, for some dumbass news. I know a lot of people enjoyed that segment last week talking about old boy from the Seahawks uh, trying to get his little um, training camp, whatever you wanna call it in. I got some different dumbass news for you this week. So we're gonna go to South Carolina. I got this from the Associated Press. Headline, candidate for mayor faked the tack to blame opponent. So according to this write-up, Sabrina Belcher faked a beating and a kidnapping on Facebook Live to try to smear one of her opponents in a mayoral race in South Carolina. And what happened apparently was that she convinced a friend to bust her windows out of her car and snatch her out of the car. Um, this happened all on Facebook Live. And then she was going to blame one of her opponents and say that they had somebody come and do that to her. Um, obviously, that was found out to be a fraud. It sounded like a terrible plan to begin with. And then we fast forward. She's getting charged with felony conspiracy and also falsifying a police report. Here's the deal, folks. If you are in a political race and you've got to stage your own kidnapping in order to win, uh, you probably should have dropped out the race a long time ago. I, I don't understand why people do certain things that they do. The question I asked last week is the question I'll ask this week. Was it worth it? Now you're being brought up on felony charges. Was it worth it? And the answer to me is absolutely not. Um, we've seen celebrities do this. Uh, most famously, Jesse Smollett, um, who was apparently getting a 2 a.m., subway and, and had staged a beating of his own. We've seen this play out before. It doesn't work well, folks. It really doesn't. So that's my dumbass news of the week. Uh, Sabrina Belcher, you got to do better next time. So coming up, we're going to transition into this awesome interview I have with Nicole Auerbach. She's talking about everything, including some of these college football topics. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Now up for the who's who of the Joshua Perry show, we have Nicole Auerbach, friend of mine, senior writer for The Athletic, and it seems like probably the most popular person in breaking new sports right now. We've done CNN, we've done NBC, we've done everything lately. How have you been? I've been good. You, you want to be my agent? You want to help keep track of all of this for me? It's actually been <laughs> affecting my sleep and hard to keep track of. I know. It's like you get... Whether it's the morning news, whether you're up at midnight doing these hits, it seems like all hours of the day and night you're popular. You know, they it, it is kind of crazy because it's on such a different schedule than like sports because they do do a lot of like, let's talk at like 6 a.m. Let's let's do things at midnight. Like I had to, NPR, which by the way is awesome. Like it was yeah. so cool to be asked to do NPR. I had to get up at 3.30 in the morning to record that. That's a hell of a deal. So I actually did a radio hit um, at midnight. And that was like the latest thing I've done. And then I'll get up and I'll do like the 6.37 a.m. hits as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they will ask you, it doesn't matter. And, and obviously you with your background and your connections, like your information is, is coveted and the knowledge is definitely something that people are after right now. But um, I guess we'll jump right into it. We'll start off, we'll talk some of the college football stuff. We'll talk your professional career and then we'll just get into who you are as a person. How's that sound? 
Perfect. Also, I just wanted to point out that there is some synergy here between Michigan and Ohio State. Yes. There is a friendship. Is not all hate. No. I'm just, I just wanted to say that off the top. No, and I I can definitely appreciate that. I've actually made some really good connections with Michigan people. Sorry, Buckeyes, but like Mike Martin, (laughs) I got to know him pretty well over the course of the season doing BTN. Obviously, uh, we've started a really good friendship here. And then some former players um, outside of who I've worked with in sports. Kyle Kalis is a guy who I played with. Fantastic people. So there is some synergy, but we've definitely hit it off in terms of a friendship between Ohio State and Michigan. Um, so just starting off with all the, the, the Big Ten postponement, cancellation, whatever you'd like to call it, Pac-12 as well, what do you make of the situation? Well, they're not going to play the season in the fall. I, I think we can start there because – a lot of rumors and rumblings, which by the way, got to the point where Jim, James Franklin was asked about it and he was like, what are we talking about? Um, it, it reminded me of that summer of realignment where everybody had a source and there was crazy information floating around. Um, but it, it's been an interesting week and a half because I think you, you obviously didn't see this type of backlash in the Pac-12. They made the same decision as the Big Ten. Um, but it's, it's a different environment. It's a different political environment. We already know how that's impacting these. You know, you've, you've heard governors in the SEC and the way that they're insisting that college football is going to move on. Um, you've got a first-year commissioner. You've got, you know, states that are in different scenarios, different restrictions and rules and what they can do. I mean, the Pac-12 had two schools in USC and UCLA that couldn't work out. Like, they couldn't be in their gyms. Um, and so... It was fascinating to watch the the rollout was very different between the two leagues. Um, And, you know, it certainly would have helped the Big Ten to have medical experts, medical reports or information put out. Um, But it was almost like the reaction was just people didn't want to believe that that was actually happening. So then for eight days, you had coaches, players, fans, parents, just like kind of refusing to believe that the season was going to be postponed. But it is, it is. And... (laughs) Honestly, like this is probably not the end. I mean, we've seen the outbreaks at Notre Dame and UNC. I mean, even if you think the Big Ten moved too soon to do it and to call it and to not give it a little bit more time to try it, there's no guarantee that the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 are going to play a single game. So it's just been a fascinating few months in college sports, um, but especially as we're now in this phase where schools that are normally doing the same thing or doing different things or plan to do different things. It's kind of created a very weird dynamic and so much tension. Yeah. And we talked about this too, um, just some, from some of our discussions about it, but, and not to turn this into a politics show I and mean, I can do whatever the hell I want because it's my show, but we talked about that, that political bias and probably some of the decision-making where the West coast first off, like California, Washington, when this coronavirus pandemic first started, they were hit extremely hard. And so they probably have a little bit of a different perspective. But when you also look politically, um, there are some of the states that have been definitely more with the stay at home orders and and not getting back to normal life. Um, The Midwest obviously is kind of in the middle of it where you have some of their states who really didn't want to shut down and um, had a, a very visceral response. They had some of the other states who were Johnny on the spot when it came to shutting down and telling people to stay at home. And then like you said, too, looking down south, it was just like, you know, a three-week shutdown, everybody was back to business as usual. So it makes perfect sense just from that regard 
that these, uh, these schools and these conferences would have those responses. But the thing that you brought up that was really interesting, and I, I want to kind of dive a little bit more into it, is you talked about James Franklin, and he's, you know, he was confused when asked about getting back to having some sort of fall season and, you know, this maybe six-team Big Ten conference type of situation. And then you hear the other thing that he said. It's not that he's necessarily – he disagrees with canceling football for the fall. It's just a lack of communication and transparency in the decision-making. And then you go out to Minnesota where P.J. Fleck has been 100% on board, and Tanner Morgan even said that he appreciates the Big Ten conference taking player health and safety seriously by canceling the season. And then you juxtapose that with Ohio State where Ryan Day is, is hashtagging fight and all of their coaches are retweeting players and Justin Fields starts a petition. Mark Pantone's probably been the loudest one on Twitter and he's got a job to do in recruiting. So he, he has to show recruits that they're serious, but it's, it's not even just the fact that, you know, we didn't get that communication from the Big Ten Conference itself. It's the fact that you're hearing different messaging coming from different coaches different athletic directors and different university presidents as well. Yeah. And it's weird because the big 10 used to be just like the example of cohesiveness and everyone being on the exact same message all the time. Like you, you could never determine who actually felt like they wanted to break ranks because no one came close to it. Right. So I think that's one of the pieces that has kind of made this all fascinating, why everyone is watching and why it's been, you know, nine days or whatever and we're still talking about it is because this is unusual and you know the Pac-12 the fact that they were cohesive that they were unanimous there was no players and coaches backlash like that's rare for them like usually there's infighting in the Pac-12 and there's none in the Big Ten and it was the opposite I, I do think you know if you're Ohio State and you had a team that could could have won a national championship I absolutely understand the frustration and you know Justin Fields putting out a petition showing how much he cares about football and wants to play leadership. All these things are going to help him with his NFL draft stock. Not that it needed that much help, but like there are benefits to doing that. There are benefits for Ohio state to continue to fight and, and to show this, that they care, that they wanted to play. They're going to be recruiting against these sec guys who are going to be saying your league doesn't care about football as much, which can we just say on the front, like, it's a pandemic. That is the dumbest argument to negatively recruit against someone. But it's going to happen. That's that's the fact. Um, so I so I understand that, and and I I do think that ultimately the decision was a, is based in science, based in health and safety. Um, again, everyone else might eventually get there as well. I mean, right now we only have six leagues left in the FBS that are trying to play. Everyone else at every other level has shut it down. So it's funny because the conversation isn't about like, wow, what a stand, what a great thing that the Big Ten did. And James Franklin brought this up too. He's like, this is actually a decision that should be applauded. Yes. But we're not even talking about that because people were upset that they felt like it happened sooner than they were ready for. Um, There wasn't a ton of communication about like, what is a spring schedule going to look like? Because they hadn't really dealt with it. Um, there wasn't answers for their players about eligibility scholarships because they don't have those yet. The NCAA hasn't determined that. So I, I understand the frustration, but I actually do think that James Franklin probably summed it up the best out of everyone, which is I don't disagree with the decision because you can absolutely defend the decision. It was just all of the other pieces around it. And the fact that, and I've heard this from ADs in the league too, 
it just, you, you went from, okay, we're about to start fall camp and here are medical protocols to nothing. Yes. And I think they all thought that they were going to test out those medical protocols, right? And, and give them a chance because they'd spent months on them. So I, I totally understand the frustration. I get it. Um, you know, it's been more interesting for, for our perspective to watch all of this play out publicly because it never does. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like that's where it is. And, and everyone keeps talking about a winter season now. So it seems like people want to start in January. We'll it's, see. I know. And it's so unique to, from that winter season perspective, like I guess the question you asked for that is, are we even sure that we're, we're going to be in a place in terms of how we're handling the pandemic that we can get back in the winter? And, and you talk about cold and flu season and all those other things that go into it. Um, and the interesting thing, too, that you brought up with James Franklin, you know, we should be applauding this. I have a, a feeling that even if the rest of the Power Five ends up canceling football this fall, we're not going to look back and say that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were trailblazers. We're going to look back and say that they were cowards who pulled the plug too early, even though everybody came to the same decision. And that really, really disappoints me. Again, cowards for listening to science and health experts in a pandemic. Like it's just it's, the, the way that this stuff gets framed in college football is just bizarre. And we know this, like we know the craziness, but it's still like, you have to take a step back sometimes and be like, why on earth would they be criticized for doing this? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's tough. And I, I understand the transparency aspect and people are 100% uh, right if they're mad that there was a lack of transparency and they felt like everything that happened the tone change was a little bit too quick and they, they didn't put their full effort into testing out some of the protocols. I can understand that, but to say, based off of some of the science that exists and the fact that you know we watch now campuses that are filling back up, um, their numbers are going crazy. You can't tell me it was a bad decision. So um, you, you obviously talked to the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference, Kevin Warren. Was there anything you took away from that um, just in terms of some of the things that he said or his tone during that conversation? So that's actually one thing that people are not focusing on much is that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 didn't start training camp. Like they pulled the plug before getting to fully padded practices, whereas the SEC and the Big 12 in particular had been saying all along, we'd love to see what that looks like. Like we'd love to see if, you know, if it does that mean the virus spreads more rapidly through a team, if they're, if they're in closer contact, you know, what happens to the O-line, D-line. Um, and then also what happens when students come back to campus, right? Like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 figured out, they were like, no, we know what's gonna happen when students come back. We yeah. don't need to wait for that. And then also Kevin Warren was describing, you know, just the elevated, again, the elevated risks of putting people in closer proximity for longer and then potentially like the contact tracing piece of that, right? Like if one person tests positive, does that wipe out the entire offensive line? Sure. Um, so basically it was, it was almost like, they got right up to it and then decided they could see how it was going to work and they didn't want to put people at risk. Um, and then he also said he felt comfortable with the smaller groups, um, the socially distanced workouts, like the types of workouts that they will be doing in the fall now. Um, so I thought that was interesting because people have wondered, well, if it's not safe, why are they still practicing? Well, again, it's, it's a different type of practice, a different setup. Um, and then I asked him about his son who's playing at Mississippi State, if he is going to play this fall or if he's practicing with his team and he is and and it's it's bizarre how many people act like that is like hypocrisy when it's someone who's in charge of 10,000 athletes and like they're 
you know, is that, you know, is responsible for that versus like an adult child who is over 18, who can make his own decisions and is in a different location. Like so much of what we learned with this virus is it matters where you are in your local healthcare system. Like if they have tests, if they, if they can turn them around, it's different than like where you are versus no, where and I that's, am. That's a big point too. Like that's one thing that folks in Columbus have been harping on so much is like Kevin Warren, he's going to let his son play and that's hypocritical. And I guess my response to that is like Kevin Warren makes decisions on behalf of the big 10. So if his son was playing here, his son wouldn't be playing just he has no jurisdiction over what happens in the SEC, and his son is a grown-ass man, so he can make his own decisions. And how many times have you made a decision that your parents tried to say, hey, probably not the best for you. You know, we wouldn't make that decision if we were you. I don't know how safe that is. And you're like, screw it. I'm a grown adult. Like, let me make my own mistakes. And this is the other thing that we, we kind of talked about, too. We did a roundtable on BTN, and Howard Griffith was on there, and his son plays for Notre Dame. And the one thing that he said was that he was comfortable with his son playing and now Notre Dame's going through their issues. And he said, he said, I don't think it's that safe. But the other thing that he said is that he's going to support his son if he wants to continue to play. And when I asked my father, who uh, both of my parents were presidents of Ohio State's football parents in 2014, he said that he would 100% be on my side if I said I wanted to play with the knowledge that football is a dangerous game to begin with. So every time I'm out there, my mom's holding her breath. And the fact that if I want to play through a pandemic, there's not really much he can do to stop me. So he would support me in trying to find the safest way to do that. And so it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think from a football parent's perspective, which a lot of people would lack, is that you, you support your child playing an already dangerous game. And so I don't know if it's just that or, or anything else, but a lot of these parents end up supporting their kids probably understanding that there are some dangers along with the coronavirus, but it's just one more thing that's dangerous. It's not the only thing that's dangerous. And so I, I just feel like that's really unique perspective that's lost a lot uh, upon a lot of people. No, I think that's a really good point because I, I think that you, in, in players themselves, you know, even if you're not thinking about it constantly, but like I thought that there would be more of a pushback back in June when guys went back to campus and they were being asked return during a pandemic because we know how much college football money you know they need yeah. these, these schools right like I thought there would be more of a pushback there um you know we saw that a little bit with the we are united movement out of the pac-12 like you've seen people raise issues about health and safety standards um you know and speak up about things but there's no union there's no like formal way to you know get the player perspective out there and to really like have a seat at the table but at the same time um you know it, it's it's easier to just, you know, we already assume risk. We already know what's, you know, this and that, like our, you know, our age group, we're healthy, like for the most part, like, you know, we're going to be fine. You know, maybe now we're learning about some long-term health issues that there's always going to be a risk at, but again, you're already taking on risk. So even from a football playing perspective, I could see that as you are in this environment, and after being cooped up at home with your parents for months, wanting to get back with your teammates, wanting to get back to campus, um, and then now getting closer to the season and maybe feeling differently or raising the issues about health and safety protocols, right? Or your parents, like we've seen both ends of the spectrum on parents, like 
there are parents that are concerned at various places too. Um, but it's almost like there was a different mindset back in June where you just like wanted to get out of the house and get back and play football because you love it. And then now it's like, okay, what is that risk? What am I taking on? And then you have a bunch of players that again are already taking on risk, already understand that even if they're not thinking about it that way, they already know what comes with playing football. So it's really a fascinating case study and especially for like amateur athletes, um, yeah. which, which I think, you know, I, we've talked about this a lot offline and I think has come up a lot in the conversation because it is very different. Um, there, there are reasons that things are going very differently in college football than in the NFL than in the pro sports. Um, and I do think it's been helpful to see prominent NFL players opt out. And so that at least the college players, you know, can see that that is an option because again, the power dynamic is so different in college. that I think it's very hard to push back. So, you know, any little thing that kind of empowers players, I support, but I think that there's when, when, when all is said and done, if there, you know, if there's no college football games played this fall, like the list of reasons why that is, is immense. And it will include a lot of details about not having a union, not having player involvement in setting up the policy, setting up the season and how it actually works. No, that's, that's a great point. And, and even when I was playing, um, Northwestern made that push for a union. And obviously like, it's not a real union. It's more of a, a player representation group because they're not employees, but the fact of the matter is you want to have a seat at the table and you want to talk through all these things. You want your voice to be heard. And really you, you want it to be a diverse group of players too, with different concerns, you know, probably some at, you know, Ohio State, for example, and then you get some players out of Rutgers too, because, you know, Rutgers is going to feel differently about playing than Ohio State is. And then to your point too, when you talk about the NFL, it's not even a fair comparison. The NFL seemingly has endless resources in terms of money to pour into this thing. And then their guys are getting paid. So along with the financial contract also comes a social contract of we're paying you X amount of money. We expect you to play. The social contract says you're getting paid X amount of money. So we don't give a damn what the risk is. You're going to go out there and you're going to play and you're going to be happy about it. And we're going to give you this opportunity to opt out. You're not going to make as much money, but these are, these are the options and you have to pick from them. So I think. Well, and, and can't they, they can also say like, you can be punished if you don't, if you do yes. things that put other people at risk, like you could theoretically say that to college students, but how can you, it's not like you can find them. It's not nope. like you could void a contract. Like it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work the same way when they're not technically employees. And that's the deal. It's like, you're not going to not play a guy. Like if he's your best player and he was right. out, like as long as he doesn't have the Corona, you're going to put him in the game Right. in the NFL, they're going to play the guy, but that guy's not getting paid for that week. And that's mm -hmm. how that transaction works. So really, really interesting that you brought that up. Um, all right, so real quick, if, if we're moving forward with a winter spring season, what do you think the best plan of attack is? So it's a good question because I previously before everyone started referring to a winter season, which which I get because if you're Ryan Day and James Franklin, you don't want this whatever abbreviated season to impact fall 2021. Um, you'd like to potentially have guys play before the draft. I get all of that. Um, but theoretically, like I've seen some of the models out of like junior college and the SWAC start later. Um, they start late February. So you're playing in better weather. Um, and I, I just think there's ways to do it. If you say like, and they won't do this, but if you said like, we're only going to have six games 
And, you know, you can put that over eight weeks and do that towards the end. Maybe your big 10 champ plays the Pac-12 champ in the Rose Bowl or something, right? Like there are ways to make that work. Um, but I do think if you're going to try to get more games in, if you're trying to get eight to 10, you're going to have to start earlier. Um, James Franklin was talking about like a dome setup. Like, can you go to a, can you go to different venues to play in that type of, you know, weather indoors? Um, so I'm kind of really fascinated to see how it works. I think, again, the, the number one thing I guess I would start with was the amount of games. Number two would be when I wanted to end by. I, I think that, you know, a lot of programs get pretty physical in spring ball. So I, I, to me, my end date would be around when spring ball normally ends. Um, so I think like by the end of April, like that would be the time frame I'd work from. But it sounds like some of these guys want to go earlier, want to go shorter. I mean, what's, what, as a player, what would you prefer? So this is this is where I get a little bit twisted up because Jeff Brown put out that model and it was fantastic and they broke it down and it made it seem like, um, you know, they, they the thing that they were counting was like padded practices. So it made it seem like mm. it was less tough on an athlete's body. But I'm not I, where I'd be concerned as a player is not the padded practices because players understand and they're they're more under control with the tempo sometimes and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's the the non-contact, non-padded practices where you see guys blowing out Achilles and tearing ACLs and stuff. And so I'd love to see that comparison. For me, I think as a player, if you're giving me six games, regardless of when it happens in that calendar for a winter spring, you can't convince me that six games really matters in the grand scheme of things. You can't convince me that, you know, like Justin Fields, why would you play in that? They're not going to, you're not getting the Heisman out of six games. You're not getting All-American out of six games. Like, those are the questions I start to ask is, is where does a spring season really matter in the grand scheme of things? And then the second question off of that is for a spring season to matter, do we end up taking more off of the fall season, which everybody traditionally cares about? And so I think from a player wear and tear standpoint, it's cool. Like you can convince me, you can talk me into it. You can, I mean, NFL, they play 20 games, including preseason. You can talk me into it, but from a how much does it actually matter standpoint is where I start to be like, no, I don't want to do that. So that's a really interesting question because I think there's also when you do the math, right, of like how much it would cost to try to make this happen. Um, but but then to try to recoup some of your media money, like, you know, there, there's competing interests, right? Because I think probably the easiest way um, and might end up being the most cost effective way. Again, we don't know how much money people would get to broadcast these games in the spring, but maybe the better outcome is to just not try, right? To just, to just wipe it all out and go to next fall. The, the problem there, because of what you're saying, I mean, the incentives, you know, who's going to play, you know, is this going to even feel like a season? Is it feel worthwhile? We, we know that their eligibility is not really going to be affected, which is good. Um, you know, no matter how many games anyone is able to play. But the question is, even if you know that probably the most prudent decision is to just not try to play in the winter or spring, why would you say that now? I, I, to me, I think you have to pursue this. You have to go down that, that rabbit hole, look at different models, keep hope alive. Like imagine being a player and not having anything until next fall. I know. Like, the, the hope thing is what kills me though. Like hope is not a strategy. And that's why I, like, I understand that you, you need to dangle a carrot out in front of athletes, coaches, fans, everybody. If you have right? nothing to play towards until next September, that's tough. It's so tough, but like, Okay, so you, you, you put out this false hope. There's going to come a point where they're going to realize that there's, there's, it's probably not a great setup to try to play twice in one calendar year 
and then they end up pulling the plug on it. How many people are going to be so pissed off? You told us we were going to get it. Like, it's the hardest job to have right now. I don't envy anybody who has to make these decisions. Now I get to sit back and we talk about it and it's fun. Right. But right. like, you know, this is somebody's job and it sucks, but I, it's, it's really tough. Um, all right. So let's move on to some more personal things. Um, I want to, I want people to kind of get to know you as a person a little bit. And one of the, the cool things about you is you're one of the best at what you do. And so my question for that is, has this always been something that you saw yourself doing as a little kid? Or is this something that, you know, as you got older and you started, you know, you were in college and you were following sports and everything else, you developed your true passion for? Yeah, no, I, I did not. There are sports writers and sports journalists who say that they, you know, were writing little, they were making up little newspapers on napkins, you know, when they were four. That was not me. I played sports growing up. I mean, my sports through high school were tennis in the fall, basketball in the winter, softball in the spring. Softball was my main sport. And I, I, I loved sports, loved being around them, but I was really, so yeah, so I was pretty math and science-y through high school. And I thought that I was going to go to business school. I thought I, my dad was owned his own business. I thought that was going to be my path. Um, I was going to major in business or econ. And I get to Michigan, um, didn't really know anyone. It was, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, big school, no one from my high school went there. Everyone went to like these, I went to a private school. So everyone went to like the Muhlenbergs and like Colgate's and this tiny little, you know, liberal arts colleges. And I, you know, erred on the side of going bigger. And so I get to Michigan, I'm moving into my dorm welcome week. And I meet a girl across the hall from me as a sophomore. And we're talking about our dream jobs at some point. And she wants to be a heart surgeon because it's like noble job. And I'm okay. like, oh, my dream job would be to write for Sports Illustrated. And she's like, oh, you should just join a student paper here. Like my friend works in the news staff. So her friend got me the email of the sports editor. Um, so I'm like, you know what? I, I'm going to need to join some things to make some friends. So I go to the first meeting, which was the day after the first football game, which my first football game at Michigan was App State. <laughs> Yeah, that was my introduction, first time in the big house. Uh, and I go to the student newspaper meeting the next day, and they had this whole like big sec section, special section um, about Chad Henney, Mike Hart, Jake Long coming back. They wanted to compete for a national championship, right? They had spent all summer working on this special section. They tear it all up, and they're like, all right, we got to do like what the hell happened story. So I am, you know, this scared little freshman and I'm sitting there and I volunteered to pick up a story on like ultimate Frisbee and I'm watching this and it's pretty interesting. And I'm like, wow, it's pretty, pretty cool that like there's these four college seniors that are writing like authoritatively, like what went wrong for Michigan um, and publishing it. And so basically like anything college, you know, you just, you make a couple friends, you keep coming back to meetings and I was terrible. Um, and I just like, you know, got a little bit better, a little bit better. And then a family friend recommended I apply for an internship at the Trentonian in Trenton, New Jersey, which is kind of like a tabloid, um, but like a legit sports section. So the summer after my freshman year, which is early for internships, but I interned covering the Trenton Thunder, the double A team for the Yankees. Um, I did little league baseball and softball, drag racing, which by the way is really hard to cover. It's a three second race and sure. like there's not much to write about. So during that internship, that's when I realized that like this was something that I really liked and wanted to do. And when 
I was working nights and weekends. It didn't feel like I was missing anything, um, which is hard when you're 18 and everyone's back from college and hanging out every night. But I didn't feel like I was missing anything because I felt like it was rewarding. It was something that, you know, I, it didn't feel like work. Um, and so once I got to that point, I like decided, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for this. And everyone tells you not to because journalism is dying and there's no jobs. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to pursue it, work really hard and, you know, see, like I can always pivot if, if there are no jobs. Um, so I ended up covering hockey, basketball and football at Michigan. Um, I also covered football for the Detroit Free Press one, my junior year, helped out with them. And then I, you know, interned at the Cape Cod Times, covered Cape League baseball after my sophomore year, interned at USA Today after my junior year, and interned at the Boston Globe after my senior year. And, you know, I'd kept in touch with people at USA Today and, and they had an opening. So my first job, first full-time job was like a digital editor. I was posting other people's stories. I was doing slideshows. I was, I had to teach myself how to code for like the bubble tracker we were doing for the tournament. Um, so it was, it was a lot and you know, it's not what you want to be doing, right? You want to be out there. You want to be interviewing people, writing the stories yourself. And, you know, after a couple of months, there was a restructuring very like media in the 2020s. Like there was restructuring, people had to reapply for their jobs and I was, you could apply for any job. So I applied to be a college basketball reporter because I was like covering college basketball, but just not out and reporting on it. And I was able to get that. And then you know, then it just kind of went from there. Then I'm like, all right, now there's 350 teams. I don't know anyone. What do I do to build relationships um, and just start from scratch? And then after a few years, I added some college football to my duties. I did um, two Olympics. I covered swimming at the London and Rio Olympics and went from there. And now I've been at The Athletic for three years because I joined when we were launching our college football national vertical. So the company was really small. It was about 50 people. And this is the summer of 2017. And now there's like 500 employees. Like it's, it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 I stumbled into it. Like I, again, if I, I don't know, if I don't meet that girl in my dorm, I don't know that I ever connect the dots between like, I love reading Sports Illustrated cover to cover with, okay, like this is actually real people do these jobs and it's, it's possible to do it. Um, so it's been, it's been super cool. Um, obviously I do work with BTN. That's how we met. Um, well, and I probably, I mean, I'm probably interviewed you back in the day. Cause I did that 2014 team. I was assigned them for USA Today. We had four college writers. So it was the first year of the playoff. Everyone got one team and I got Ohio state. So I was like in Columbus, like that entire December, which I don't know if you remember, but it was really cold. It was like nine degrees, like the entire yeah. December. Um, so I covered your team and then uh, got assigned Michigan State the next year. So all of my like Michigan grad friends like could not believe, they were like, why do you keep tweeting about Ohio State and Michigan State so much? And I'm like, they're my assignment. But you know, so anyway, it's been, it's been a wild ride. Um, but again, I just, I keep going back to like how, you know, if you don't go, like Michigan wasn't my top choice. If I don't go to Michigan, if I don't meet this one person, like, I don't end up doing this type of career. And so um, I'm not like a huge like destiny and like, you know, everything happens for a reason person, but I am in terms of like, you know, you think where you go to college is the biggest decision that you're ever going to make. And like, you know, I wanted to go to Duke and I got waitlisted. I don't think this would have happened if I go to Duke, you know? And so I, I think that's one thing that's, that's important to take away when, you know, especially when you're facing like your first major 
disappointments or, you know, decisions. My sister and brother went through it after I did and not getting into their top choices. And it feels devastating. And then you realize like that there are twists and turns that would only happen if you are in a certain place at a certain time. No, that timing thing is actually big. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a destiny person. Like I think that things line up the way that they're supposed to, and they happen for a reason. Um, and, and so it's really interesting to hear that story. And then you talk obviously about um, getting into media and my, my journey into media is like the, the easy path. You former player, you know, you get the job or whatever. And like, I, I, I'm known for my expertise. Like I know football. That's why people want to talk to me. Um, for you, it's so different because you really have to show why you're an expert and you have to put all the hard work in. And like, you know, our, our days in, in the studio for BTN are super long days, but I know as a writer, you have long days and then you have deadlines you have to meet and your people you're trying to nail down. And there's so much that goes into it, but still you've been able to put out very, very accurate information and you've cultivated such awesome relationships within the industry. What went into the process of building those relationships? Because like you said, you go into college basketball, you got 300 some odd teams, you don't know a lot of people, but you're able to make your way through to where you're a trusted voice and a trusted source. It's really hard. Um, and it was really intimidating to start from scratch and just look around and think that other people have been doing this for a lot longer and knew everybody. Um, so the example I always give is Jay Wright. So I was living in DC and there would be, you know, you'd get emails about like, okay, there's a coaches versus cancer luncheon in Baltimore or something. And you know, these things are not ultimately that useful for work purposes, but I was like, no, I'm going to go to anything that is local that I can drive to. You know, I was going to go to AAU events that were in the area just to sit on the benches and introduce myself to coaches. That's how I met Mike Bray. And, but I go to this coach's luncheon and I make sure to introduce myself to Jay Wright. So these are the, like, this is what networking is. It's like you drive an hour both ways. You sit through a two hour luncheon for five minutes. Yeah. five minutes handshake and you talk to Jay Wright and you give him your card. Right. And he was so nice. And he was like all excited that I was from Jersey. His wife's a Jersey girl. They have a place down the shore. And he was like, Nicole, we, you know, I'd love for you to meet my staff. Like, you know, you're new, like come up anytime. We'll have lunch. I'll show you the campus. So I take him up on that instead of like, assuming it's just polite. I'm like, you know what? He made the offer. I'm going to do it. So I ended up going, uh, planning a trip. So Villanova wasn't very good that year. This was, I don't know if they made the tournament that year. Um, but I decided to plan a trip to, again, wherever I could drive, right? So I went to VCU for a day to see Shaka, which again, everybody knew him, but I was like, I need to also know him. Yep. Um, and then the next day I went to Lehigh to see CJ McCollum, who had just beaten Duke the year before. And I had done a couple of stories with him. And I still talk to the Lehigh coach, like to this day when they, they, I drove there for like a Tuesday night game that no one was at just to, you know, again, shake hands. And, you know, if I text CJ right now, he'd respond. I mean, not if he's, you know, scoring 40 points in a game or whatever, but like, so I, so I, I, I had that. And then the next day went to Villanova and Jay like put me on the golf cart, gave me a whole tour, had lunch in the mess hall, like all of these things, met the entire staff and you know, I, so you're, you're thinking, you feel good. You leave that day and you're like, all right, like, I feel like, you know, this is someone who wants to build a relationship with me as well. You know, like it's, it's a two way street. And you fast forward, they win the first, you know, he wins his first national championship 
my job at that game is to stay with Villanova as late as possible, write about stuff that no one's seeing. And I am sitting down with Jay and his wife at two in the morning as they're finally eating in an empty ballroom next to the Villanova party, mm. you know, getting an exclusive interview because of these relationships where you go out of your way to see people. I mean, for Shaka, like when VCU would play Fordham when I was living in New York, I'd go to Fordham on a Wednesday night for a game that was a blowout because Fordham was bad, but I would go just for that five minutes handshake at the end. And so I think that's like how I approach all of this is obviously FaceTime is important. And I think also people can tell if you literally are only going to pump them for information. And the only times you're going to reach out to them are, did so-and-so get injured? Did you take this job? And I like to think that hopefully that the people I cover think that I do care about them as people um, and remember things about their lives and, you know, have inside jokes almost because we've talked about things in their personal life um, or my personal life that, 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 that transcend that. And so, you know, I I also think I've always tried to treat people fairly. I'm not going to, you know, burn somebody um, on something that is off the record just for, you know, Twitter likes or whatever. Right. And so, it's, it's balancing all of that. Um, and then also, again, just even if it's inconvenient, like going out of your way to, to make time for people, because I think they understand that that's inconvenient and it, and it says something to them that you went out of your way to go make sure it was that important. It was a priority for you to spend a little bit of time with that person. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's just kind of like how I started to build a network of any sort. And then you know, the, the more you're doing that and it starts to come naturally, then you get in the position where like Jay just wins a national championship and you can be there because he's waving you in, you know, because you have that relationship. So I, I think this is like a, what you just said, I think is powerful, obviously in your career and what you do, but just for anybody who is like in business, for example, like you, you put in, you drive a couple of hours each way, um, you sit through the game and then at the end, you only get five minutes. And so what we, what we see is that five minutes at the end, what people don't see is all that work that you had to do. And then of course that five minutes based off of the work that you did ends up becoming, you get to spend a night after a national championship and, and really get that inside information, that perspective, nobody else gets, which is huge. Um, but I, I just, I, it's really interesting to hear. And we're kind of that age where everything is done in a microwave and it's instant gratification yes. and there is nothing about that process that happens quickly. I think the other thing that really stands out, and this is something that in 2020, I feel like people need to hear, but you talked about just being a good person and having respect and not burning people and just building a genuine relationship. And I feel like so many times, um, again, it's like that social media connection where if it's not instant, it's not gonna happen. Or like you talk to somebody and then you fall off. Um, But building relationships is still important, like regardless of what you do. Um, you're dealing with people a lot of the time. So it's always important to treat people the right way. Um, So this is one thing that we have had conversations about. Um, You're obviously in a a male dominated um, industry, sports, you're dealing with a lot of male athletes, obviously covering football, you're dealing with basically only males there. Um, A lot of your colleagues are men. And it seems like you're not going to let anything about anything stop you. And so I guess the question for me is, um, is there some point of pride for you um, being able to break through some of the barriers that you're doing? And then the other question would be, what challenges have come along the way with that? 
Yeah, I do think there's, there's, there's an element of pride. Um, it's certainly not as, you know, challenging as it was in the seventies or the eighties, right. You know, becoming the first woman to be in a locker room, but like in 2008, the, the minor league Yankees team tried to block me from going in their locker room, like 2008. Wow. So like the, these things still happen and, you know, it, and I think still, you know, you, you go in somewhere and someone, the, the thing about being a woman in, in sports is that the assumption is that you don't know sports. So like when I would cover, when I was covering primarily basketball, very basic sport, by the way, like girl <laughs> playing, but there's like, it's very straightforward. Um, sometimes I would get, you know, you'd be in the gym and an AAU tournament and coaches would be like, oh, did you play? And I'm sure that they didn't mean this as like vetting my knowledge of basketball, but they kind of did, right? Like that's kind of what they're asking. And so I always had a go-to answer about like, you know, how bad my varsity team was in high school. We won two games and I just like couldn't deal with losing that many games like and quit. And, you know, so I had a little funny answer to it, but, and it doesn't get asked in football, obviously, because people aren't going to ask me if I played football, but it's, right. it's coming from this assumption that you don't have the knowledge where like, I have seen so many of my male colleagues who are not in shape who don't have an athletic bone in their body, never, never get questioned about like how the sport works yeah. um, or any of their questions. And, you know, I had, I remember, you know, one of my female colleagues, like, you know, was covering Florida early in her career. And she asked, um, you know, a question about special teams and about, you know, just a certain alignment. And like, the coach is like, oh, wow, I'm, in, I'm impressed that, you know, a woman asked this. And, and so it's like, these are people who are our age going through this. Like, it's not like this was the seventies and eighties. Like this is just an ingrained element where it's a surprise that a woman might be super knowledgeable about sports. Um, so that is, that's a challenge. Like to just go in where the assumption is that you don't know anything. So you're constantly having to prove that you do um, where, you know, or even on Twitter, if you put out an opinion, like the response is, you know, that you shouldn't be in the space, like go, go back to the kitchen or whatever. And instead of like, argue with me tell me i have a bad opinion like give me sports arguments like all my male colleagues get so you know that that's where it's like the day-to-day -day basis and then just other slights about just you know how you know we we all know how boys clubs work right so you know just you know if your buddy is with a coach like in a certain way or you always go out drinking like you know maybe you're going to be in settings that i'm not necessarily going to want to be at at three in the morning and right. I'm going to work on building my relationships at happy hour instead of, you know, the closing down the bars. But is that going to impact my career and, and you know, future access and things like that? Um, and so, you know, and then setting boundaries and, and all of those pieces, too. So it's a lot to think about on a day to day basis. It just it's, it's almost like to do the same job as everyone else. You just have to put a lot more energy and effort and planning every single day into that job. Like, how am I asking for a phone number for a player or a coach? Um, what what tone am I using? What time am I texting them? What time am I calling them? Um, you know, just all of these things that my male colleagues never think about, right? Like, cause why why would they? They they don't have to think about how they ask for a phone number. So you know, it's it's all of those things. But then when when things go well, when you have a story you're really proud of or you break news, um, it's incredibly rewarding because you know I know how much work went into that to be in that position to get that story. And I think that that's what's been very cool about during all of this when I have been able to break news is, you know, like it, it matters when I hear from someone, you know, if I do a TV hit and the producer's like, I'm so excited that we have a woman to talk about this. Like, cause all of the times when sports escalates and we have to bring in an expert, it's a guy. Sure. Um, 
because there's just not that many of us. And so I think, you know, as someone who grew up watching Sports Center and you had female anchors and, and you know, you saw female reporters talking about sports, I think it's important to see women talk and give their opinions about sports. That's like the shift that we're in now. Um, you know, and I think that is awesome. So if I can like contribute to that at all, just a little bit, I am very happy about that because it's hard, but it's easier when you see people doing the types of work that you might want to do someday, it's easier to envision doing it. Um, and so, so yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard a lot of times. Um, there's great days, there are rough days, like in any job. Um, and when there are good days, like you do feel like you're hopefully, you know, making things easier for other women when there's just, as you know, when, when it's, you know, when you're in an industry that's so dominated by a certain type of person, um, what you do reflects on everyone else. So if you can do a good job, it does help other women in a male dominated field. For sure. And I, I think your point about, um, having those images for, for young women to see is huge. Um, and I talk about this all the time. Like, I feel like I am as driven as I am and I've, I've been able to strive the way I have because my father was a very successful driven black man. And so that was always what I got to see. But when you, you know, you look to industry or you look to media and you don't always see those images. So, um, it is really important and it's a big deal. And, and it's, it's funny always hearing the perspective too. I, I think funny is probably the wrong word, but like, it, it's a shame that guys would never have to think about their tone and their demeanor when they ask for a phone number for a player that they want to get an interview with. But you and your position, like that's just one of the many things that you have to be concerned with. It's I, I always will say, can I get your number in case I have any other questions for this story? Like it all just comes out like that, right? Because I don't want it to just be like, can I get your number to yeah. stay in touch? Because like, <laughs> Right. Trying to, you know, you're trying to be super clear all along, but you know, you, you've had to have to think about that, you know, and it's, it's something that you you learn early. I have friends in this profession that wore fake engagement rings so yeah. that people don't hit on them. Like it's all of these little things, like what you're wearing. It's, it's a lot. It, it can be That's exhausting. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that has to be exhausting. Like it just, it's two completely different perspectives. As a guy, I'm not like, I'm literally, I'm out there to do my job. And it's like, you've got to do two jobs at once. You've got to protect yourself and your image and who you are mm -hmm. and safety potentially. And then also like, I got to get the damn interview. Yes. Like, oh my gosh. It's a good way to um, put it. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of sports, what are your passions and your hobbies? Um, it's a good question. I have, t I've added new hobbies. So I realized I didn't really have that many hobbies. Um, outside of my dog who, by the way, I don't know if we're recording video, but he's right yeah. here. Your Say dog gets as much FaceTime as any dog in America right now. Yes. Um, he's loving the work from home life. Um, so I've taken up grilling and baking both okay. during, during quarantine and, um, have become very obsessed. So if you have any good recipes for grilling, there's like a communal grill, um, set up on the roof of my building. And so that's been fun. Um, I occasionally knit because I'm also kind of an 80 year old woman at heart. Did you get that from the girl who was knitting in that store you wrote? Well, or? no, but I actually do think that's how I in part found her because I could tell that she was crocheting, not knitting. And that helped me eventually go down a rabbit hole. I spent a few hours to try to find her name um, or anything about her, but I think it helped that I knew it was crocheting. <laughs> um, we we're talking about the Kansas student who went viral. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I have a Peloton as you know, and yeah. try to get to that, hang out with the dog. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough job where it's a lot of nights and weekends. And so it's hard to have exactly the same hobbies as everyone else, which is why, you know, cooking, grilling, baking, like it, they're, they're very therapeutic and they're fun and they've been, you know, been able to do it in quarantine. So that's been nice. But, um, but yeah, I guess so. And reading, I mean, I love, I love reading books, um, that are not about sports in particular. Sure. Um, so all of my hobbies are very quarantine friendly, which has been good. No, that is good. I'm, I'm an avid reader, so I can resonate with that. And then you, I mean, you've seen my Instagram stories, but I've been cooking my ass off. Yeah, I'm impressed. Was, it's a detriment, honestly, to my figure, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so I wanted to ask you about this, actually, because you know that I am into fashion. Like, I, I like being the best dressed when I'm on set, the whole deal. Um, and so I've, I've noticed that some of your outfits have been fantastic. So my question is for when you're getting ready to do an interview that's going to air on TV, um, what's your go-to? And then for a casual day, let's say that you're just hanging out in Chicago, what's your go-to outfit? So for, it, it's interesting because now that everything's being done like via Skype and Zoom, um, you really only have to have like a nice shirt. So you can wear like a nice sweater or blouse. Um, but for like BTN, it's always like a dress. Like it, it's always the, the full nine yards. Um, I actually, a lot of times for TV stuff did rent the runway so you can get like the nice brands, but you're, um, swapping out. So I would do the unlimited one and you would get like four different items at any time. And then you can swap them out, which is good because, you know, if you're a woman on TV, you can't really wear the same outfit all the time. No. Um, so yeah, so like I, am you know, a solid colors person. Um, and then in real life, I like stripes. Um, and I've been doing a lot of, I mean, it's been very hard to wear like jeans and like actually like form fitting clothes during all of this. So it's a lot of leggings and, you know, kind of oversized sweatshirts and things like that. Um, but actually, so my pool, my building opened like when it was allowed. So I feel like I've actually only been wearing like sweats and leggings and then bathing suits and <laughs> just like nothing in between. Um, as casual as you can get. As casual as you can get. I have all these like really cute sundresses that I just have nowhere to wear them to. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's uh, definitely spending too much despite having nowhere to go during, right. during all of this. But yeah, you are, you are the best dressed person on set, which by the way, with someone like Jerry or Howard, not too hard to do. No, but. it's really not that hard, <laughs> especially Jerry. He's like, I know his wife is probably picking out all of his outfits. I know. He doesn't give a damn. But no, it's been, I, I'm like, I'm the person, I, I call it my outfit like or my uniform, but I wear jeans and a polo almost every day that I'm not like really dressed up. Um, where I don't have appointments, like that's my loungewear. So that's not yeah. loungy. Well, when you got stretch jeans, it is loungy. Mm -hmm. So okay, I mean, There's, again, like actual, just like you could wear Lululemons, like you can wear comfortable clothes. I, I could, but I just prefer the look of denim. Okay. Um. All right. So I'm gonna get you out of here with this. It's it's a two minute drill. It's just rapid fire. I'm gonna ask you okay. some questions. I don't want you to think about the answers. I just want you to answer them. Okay. All right. First question, dream vacation. Um, I've already gone on a couple that would answer this question. So let me think. Um, well, the vacation I wanted to go in March was Italy. Um, I was yeah. going to go to Denmark. So Europe. Uh, theoretically. Italy in March. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. honestly, like now they won't let us there. So um, yeah. So I, I, I'm going to say like a, a European trip to some countries that I haven't been to. Okay. Surf or turf? 
Um, turf. Okay. Um, if you had one superpower, what would it be? I think I would like to fly. Okay. Favorite person you've covered? Ooh, this is a good one. Um, honestly, it's probably James Conner. I, I got to do the first big story on him after he came back, um, after he you know, had cancer. And he's just a delightful human, so nice, so happy that he gets drafted then by the Steelers, stays in town, having a great career so far. Just genuinely awesome person. So oh, let's go, had, James Conner. That's awesome. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, best advice I received is, that, is just the saying that, like, you know, I found the harder I work, the luckier I seem to get. Because I think a lot of people think that to get – you know, especially in our profession, because everyone loves sports and thinks they can do these jobs. They think it's all luck. Um, but I do think that, again, it's, there's all that extra work about networking and building relationships, even, you know, within the profession that people don't see, that makes it seem like, oh, wow, so-and-so just got handed this job instead of like the countless hours and phone calls and, you know, drafts of stories and all these things. So that saying has always kind of driven me. It's not necessarily advice, but it's just something that's helpful to, for me to think about. No, I, I agree with that. I feel like hard work and luck work in unison. So that's mm -hmm. really, really good advice there. What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, biggest pet peeve are people who lie. I also hate slow walkers. Ooh, slow walkers. Terrible. Yeah, you got places to be and you don't have time to waste getting there. I lived in New York for six years. Like you yeah. just can't, you just can't be a slow walker. Well, welcome to the Midwest. Uh, finally, if we're making a movie about your life, who is playing you? Oh, well, this is an easy one. You know, my celebrity doppelganger is Aubrey Plaza. So very easy. I get literally get asked if I'm the girl in Parking Rec all the time. So boom, maybe I can finally meet her if we, if we do a movie about my life and she's in it. There we go. Let's, let's get to work on the movie about your life then I think we found who's going to star in there. <laughs> All right. Well, I just want to thank you, Nicole, for joining the who's who of the Joshua Perry show. Lots of really good information getting into that college football, but also learning a little bit about your career and how you've taken a, um, a little bit of a unique path from what you thought you would be doing. Um, hopefully you'll join us again. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. All right, folks, that was our interview with Nicole Auerbeck of The Athletic. Um, some really great insights there, honestly, into conversations that she's had with Kevin Warren and his decision-making process. Also really good insight into how college football might look this year and, and her thoughts on the efficacy of playing. But um, really good to talk to her as well just on um, her career and how she got into it, some of the challenges that she's been able to overcome to become one of the more prominent voices in terms of um, reporting and breaking news in college football. So very glad to have her, and I hope we have her back for another episode. Um, finally, I'm going to finish off this week with a word, and the word this week is intent. And when you go to the dictionary and you look up intent as a noun, it is purpose. As an adjective, it is determined. And this is a, an important word for me personally because it's guided my journey and it's guided my successes and also my failures. And I'll get to that in a sec. Our brains are trained to be on autopilot, people. I don't know if you know that, but our brains use an extensive amount of energy. And so any chance that we get to conserve some of that energy our brain takes. It's why when you're driving home on your daily commute from your job to work, a lot of times you don't even see the landmarks as they pass you by. 
you just see where you leave and you see the destination, not the journey in between. That's your brain on autopilot. Um, Autopilot is a poor way to go through life. And I'm not talking about your daily commute because everybody does that. And we need our time to unwind. But if you're living your personal life at home on autopilot, if you're living your life at work on autopilot, that is a bad way to be because nothing extraordinary happens on autopilot. Now, the flip side of that is sometimes we are so consumed with the hustle and bustle and all of the stimulus around us that we forget to be purposeful. We're spreading ourselves entirely too thin. We're doing too many things for us to actually put purpose and intent into our lives. We cannot do it. We just try to get the job done. And so that's where intent comes in. You have to show purpose in all of your goals and determination in all of your actions. You have to decide how you spend your time and your mental energy. And time is one of the biggest resources that I think exists. You tell me if I lost $500, I'd be pissed, but I'd be able to go get it back. If you told me I lost five minutes, I would be pissed because I couldn't go get it back. And that's the difference. Time is a valuable resource. Also our energy. I talked about mental energy on the last episode with contentment. It's the same thing with here. This is a mental energy, not on emotions and not on people, but on focus and how we can guide ourselves. Very, very important. When you want to be a good spouse, a good sibling, good parent, good employer, or a good employee, it takes a lot of purpose and determination. Uh, sometimes that means slowing down to get involved with the, in the detail things in your life. Uh, but just because you slow down doesn't mean that you're not moving forward. Other times it causes you to speed up and take control of your life. And sometimes that's exactly what you have to do. For me, I get spread way too thin. Um, I'm one of those people where I'm just doing entirely too much. And sometimes I forget that I need to be intentional about what I'm doing. I need to apply intent to my life. And so that's where I start to slow down, continue to move forward, but definitely slow down um, and understand the little detail things in life. I have had success in life and things that I've done because of my intent. I have planned hard for those things. I have put effort and energy into those things. And I have learned from those scenarios. I've also had failures in life because of lack of intent, where I did not plan, I did not learn, I did not spend the time, and I did not focus on the details. The reality of the situation, folks, intent is a choice. You choose whether you want to be intentional. You choose whether you want to apply effort and energy, determination, or purpose to your life. And so folks, my advice to you for this upcoming week and beyond is to choose intent whenever you can. And so that'll end out our show, folks. I really appreciate everybody for tuning in and listening. We are broadcasting on the Zedia Network. Shout out to my rock star producer, Andrew Zolden. He's the best in the business. Uh, this is the Joshua Perry Show. Stay tuned. We have that bonus content coming up. Randy Wade is going to share a lot with us about that parents movement. Thanks for listening. Welcome into the Sunday morning sit down, a little special edition of the Joshua Perry show. On the Zedia Network, we have Randy Wade, father of Ohio State standout, Sean Wade. Appreciate you joining us this morning. Man, Joshua, appreciate you having me. I'm glad to be here, man. Absolutely. So uh, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts and your perspective. Obviously, you've been very outspoken 
uh, with the postponement of college football. And so I figured I wanted to hear directly from the source uh, what was going on here. So my first question to you is how do you describe the parents' movement? Uh, I describe it as just a reaction to not having enough transparency about what's going on with the with the big team. And it's really interesting, um, the word transparency. I feel like that's the thing that's probably popped up for most of us, uh, people who work in sports, obviously, players and parents. And then for fans, of course, it's been a point of pain. Um, so obviously with that, your goal, it seems like, would be more transparency. Talk about that a little bit. Um, basically, what a lot of parents want, talk to a lot of them. Of course, not all of them. I don't represent all the parents. I'm not a part of Ohio State Parents Association or anything like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm backed up on my dues. But um, uh, basically, it's about us finding out how can we play football as soon as possible, as safe as possible, meaning not playing in the fall, but to make sure we can play in the spring. Because at the end of the day, each parent has a different situation. Everybody's not showing way they have the chance to go first round. Some people, this is their last last go around. They need to decide whether it's it's good enough for them to play in the spring and try out for the NFL. That's really, really close. So with kids not getting information from the NFL, this is vital to them to know information. And and that was gonna be one of my other questions. You kind of mentioned it a little bit. Um, you know, Sean is gonna be fine. He's one of the top players in America right now. And so with that, why do you feel like you're the proper person to kind of be leading this thing up? Um, I'm not the person. I'm the proper person to be leading it up because I, I'm, I served 20 years in the military. I'm a vet. I've been all over the country. I know leadership, you know. And I'm not the person that want to sit in front of uh, Kevin Warren. I want the parents of the associations and the questions get funneled through them so they can get some kind of understanding of where we're going. I'm not, I'm not good with him just saying that um, we're going to have a committee of coaches and this or right there, and, and, and they're going to decide whether we can play in the spring. If you look at their statement, that's what it says. Um, they can just say no in spring, and our kids will have to be disappointed again. You know what I'm saying? Disappointment. As, as a parent for something your, your kid cannot control is something that you just want to have. I don't know if you're a parent or not, but like uh, if you're a parent, that's one of the biggest things, man. When, when your son or daughter is striving for something, has a goal for something, and they can't control the outcome, you know, and you just want to help. It, it happened one time, you want to help on that next time. You know, and I, I feel like that's a really big deal. I'm not a parent, but I could understand why you would feel like that because you've watched your child and all that they've invested into their goal. And you just want them to go out there and play. I also want to thank you for your service to this country. Um, so you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. You're not necessarily looking for a reversal on the decision and, and to play right away in the fall, are you? No, no, no. That's what the social media is saying. I don't want to talk to everyone. It's not me. I have questions that I will funnel up through our uh, uh, Ms. Babb, uh, the president at Ohio State, and I want other Big Ten schools to do the same thing. Um, it's just a conversation. You know what I'm saying? We the parents of the of the kids that he says that he care about so much. What's so hard about that? No, I mean, that that's – I think that is a big point because you, you kind of have these different messages floating around. I think that um, from the fan perspective, a lot of people really would like to see football being played this fall. And Commissioner Warren has made it pretty clear that there, there's no reversal. Uh, but it, it does seem like from the parents' perspective, which I wanted you to be able to make clear on here, that you're looking more so for, for 
conversation and for answers and not necessarily that reversal. And I think that's a pretty big distinction because as parents, you want to be able to have that plan moving forward, which doesn't currently exist. Um, uh, let, me say, let me say one more thing. A lot, of kids have a, a lot of kids have a lot of power right now that they don't know about. For sure. I'm a big... I have a podcast. I have a YouTube channel. I, on my YouTube channel, I have uh, uh, Jalen Ramsey's dad. I have uh, Michael Parsons' dad. You know, a lot of kids don't know this, but they can leave their school right now and go to another school and just play in the fall and just miss all this this, this craziness. You know what I'm saying? That's a lot of power. So my, my, my thing is he doesn't have to tell us, even though I feel like the way we came about the situation was crazy, if he don't want to tell us that, that's fine. But at least answer our questions to help our kids in the future. What's wrong with it? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point. Um, I wanted to hit on this because this is kind of what sparked off my interest in having you on here. So uh, right now I'm a a Big Ten Network analyst covering football in studio. Um, Obviously, with the cancellation of football, my job situation with that is a little bit funny. Um, But there was the hashtag going around and there was talk about um, pressuring fans to um, unsubscribe from BTN until we could get some answers. So I kind of wanted to get your thought process on that and then kind of have a little bit of a back and forth. Like, it's, I understand it, it affects you, and I apologize about that. No, the thing about hey, The thing about it is we just try – I'm not saying subscribe, I'm subscribed to BCN forever. I'm saying the fans keep asking me. Like, you can, I can, I'll show you my DM. Fans keep asking me, what can I do because I couldn't show up? A lot, of course, a lot of people couldn't show up. We had, like, 30-something people, and that's fine. So – I asked like a lot of people that I respect around the country, what could they do? And I finally got to the conclusion is to to unsubscribe to BCN for right now until he at least responds to us. Because I mean he's affiliated with it, whether he has something to do with it or not. Right. And and so um from the obviously I'm I consider myself the heart of an activist, the mind of a politician. So from the activism standpoint, I I 100% get that. But I wanted to kind of throw this out here um, just to describe why I feel like people can stay subscribed to BTN, but still also use their power and voice their opinions. And the first thing I'll say is um, right now it's, it's, it's unique. Big Ten Network has had a lack of live content essentially when they when they cut off the basketball season because all we do is cover Big Ten college athletics. So uh, from that perspective, it's been unique. We're broadcasting one day a week of live content on a typical week. Um, and there's really not the sports. We're just, you know, we're doing our shows and that's really it. So that's been tough. Um, Big Ten Network also as a media philosophy isn't a breaking news network. We're more of like a... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll react to the news and we'll bring on analysts who will talk about it. And so our, our structure is very different from a lot of the bigger networks. But to boil it down, um, <laughs> with the lack of live sporting events and obviously with the cancellation of football, there's a financial impact that comes along with it. Um, and that financial impact obviously is shared among employees of Big Ten Network, but also among the universities in the Big Ten. Um, and, and we're fortunate in this conference to have one of the bigger revenue shares, uh, the biggest revenue share um, in college sports. And so that all trickles down. That was kind of the first thing. The second thing, too, and I, I want to make this clear. I know you understand this, but I don't think uh, certain fans understand this. When I get my check from BTN, it comes from Big Ten Network as a Fox affiliate. It doesn't come from the Big Ten Conference. 
And so um, essentially, Kevin Warren, um, although he does care about Big Ten Network and we have a great working relationship with the conference, that's not necessarily in his pocket. It's in a lot of people who work for Fox and work for Big Ten Network's pocket. So kind of wanted to throw that out there. Um, the understanding, obviously, of all the frustration. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, we need to understand when we direct that frustration what some of the outcomes can be, whether intended or unintended. I got you, and I know it'll be terrible if, if imagine if Big Ten Network wasn't here. That's all we got. All we were here was ESPN bragging about SEC and ACC, and right. it's, it's good. It's good to have some something like that. But my thing is, just until he talks, imagine this: a, a Zoom meeting between the presidents of the associations, the ADs, and 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 Mr. Warren on BTN. You're talking about one of the biggest things that everybody gonna be looking at. That'd be awesome, and we can get some kind of transparency. And again, if he if he don't want to talk about what happened in, in the past, let's work on what happened, what's going on in the future. That's good enough. That's better. That's not hard. That's not right. hard. No. And and so I'm I'm fully in view with you in terms of how you feel in, in your just from your perspective, the lack of of transparency and the questions that you have, I couldn't imagine sitting in your shoes as a parent, even knowing that uh, your son is going to be fine moving forward. You're invested in the other parents and the other players' interests, which I think is, is very special. And that, that speaks to, I think, the bond that exists within the locker room and, and just that community there. Um, and I wish you luck moving forward in your quest for getting some of these questions answered. Um, I wish Sean luck moving forward in his football career. I know he's going to be a fantastic pro awesome guy. Um, and, and hopefully we move forward into a winter or a spring where we get some Big Ten football. Thank you. And I want to tell you, man, you are a model to my son. You know what I'm saying? Because when we, we first seen you, you don't even notice, we first seen you on the field with your girlfriend or something like that. And it's like, it was a different difference between you and the other athletes. There's a lot of athletes that are they prior athletes, man. And just the way you carry yourself, when you talk to us on our, uh, I forgot what they called it, uh, something like a transition to the NFL when you was talking or whatever. Um, keep doing what you're doing, man. Uh, you're going you're gonna, to keep, keep doing what you're doing. You're going to get there, man. People, I appreciate people it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right.